Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again today from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 592 of the Survival Podcast. It is January 24th, 2011. It is a Monday, but we're going to do a Friday show. That's where you call in 866-65-THINK. Again, you dial 866-65-THINK, and you leave me a message of two minutes or less, and then I respond to it. And uh, we got some great ones today, some awesome questions lined up. And of course, we're doing this because I was away at the Bug Out location all week last week. We were laying floor and getting things ready because we're going to be moving there permanently. We even have a question about that today. It's a very insightful question with an interesting answer, I think. Um, but we were away, so what I did is last week, not last week, the week before, I doubled up on shows and I managed to do four extra shows the week prior and uh, had you all the way through Thursday last week, but I couldn't get the Friday one done because of my laryngitis. And uh, so today we're going to try to get caught up because between the holidays and everything, I'm way backed up on your calls. So uh, we'll do one today, we'll do one Friday. Tomorrow we'll do the normal Monday show where you, you send an email in. And uh, we got the new herbal show coming up on Wednesday. i got something cool planned for uh, Thursday, so it's going to be a full and exciting week. Uh, before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, ShelfReliance.com. That's a shelf like things you put things on. Reliance.com. They have some of the most innovative food storage systems I've ever seen. Extremely well built, extremely space conscious. Remember, if you are part of the member support brigade, you get 10% off uh, all their shelving and 5% off all their Thrive long-term food storage products. Next up today, silverandgoldshop.com, run by the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont. Silver and Gold Shop has some of the most awesome silver rounds I've ever seen. Great pricing, great service. And I call her the wonderful Mary Beth because that's what you guys keep calling her when you email me about her. Uh, that says something. I, I tell you what, I have great sponsors. I only have one that people email and say, this person's wonderful. I, I've never actually, in all my years in business, just to show, throw an extra shout out to Mary Beth today. In all my years in business working is on both sides of marketing and sales and advertising. I have never had anybody referred to that way so often uh, as Mary Beth. That says something about her product and her service. So check out silverandgoldshop.com. Next up, a quick update on the gear shop. Um, the long-awaited AOCS copper rounds are here. They are shipping this week. They actually came in while uh, Tiffany and Rich were at the SHOT Show in Vegas. Uh, so they were delayed a few extra days in getting shipped because obviously they can't be in Vegas and shipping the copper from California. But they're here. Tiffany says they are absolutely gorgeous. They will be coming out soon. And remember to check out our gear shop for other stuff. Um, we ordered 11,000 in the first run. We've sold over 10. We already have a second run on order for 5,000 more. Uh, but we're going to take orders in the, in the order that to receive right now. Even though they're shipping this week, you may not get yours till next week. Because Tiffany's got to ship tons of orders now, and she's starting with the earliest orders and going forward. One more thing on the gear shop. If you've ordered an item for the gear shop, you have a question on shipping, delivery, anything like that, please don't email me. I don't run the gear shop. Tiffany and Rich Rockwell run the gear shop. I support it. Uh, that's how that works. Uh, they are an independent business. I set them up that way. Uh, and, and I provide them consulting and help, and I charge a very small license fee for the items. They're a small, independent, American-owned business. 
uh, that works with the show. So any questions about your merchandise need to go there. All right. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. Remember while I was away, I was running a special $35 off your first year with the code BOL for bug out location. Again, BOL. Well, it's still running today because I screwed up and the first day it was supposed to run didn't work for half the day. So I extended it today. You can still get $35 for your first year of uh, MSB. It's $15 off. $35 for your first year of member support brigade. You get all the benefits. Full year. Doesn't renew till next year. You have between now and then to decide if you want to keep it. If you keep it, it renews at the $50 annual renewal if you use PayPal. If you don't keep it and you cancel it, you, you know, it, it, it runs out at the end of that year. Um, if you want to join by mail, you can still do that and write uh, BOL on the form. As long as the thing's postmarked by today, we'll take it. And remember, I still do one ounce of silver for a year by mail. Check out uh, the options there. And with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, today's show. Uh, let's go ahead and take that first call. Hi, Jack. Jason from Pennsylvania here. Um, last year was the first year I did a guarding. Um, we didn't get this started until like May, June, because that was when we actually got into our house. Um, but this year, I've got spring. Um, there's lots of things I want to plant, but I don't know when I should be buying or planting my seeds to prepare for my guarding. Um, I know it's December now, but um, maybe you could talk on when to order plants, when to do the seeds, and what I should be getting equipment-wise now so I'm ready in, you know, three more months or whatever um, when it's time. Um, I mean, even just what should I be doing to sprout my seeds, and do I need to get soil, do I need to pack anything, do I, you know, and I did see the soil too, so that is something I'm considering, but... I don't even know what soils I need to buy for that. Uh, so a total gardening noob uh, looking to get a jump on spring. Thanks, Jack. Well, great question. You've got really two different things you're asking about there. One is seeds and one is plants. Let's start out with seeds. Seeds you can basically order any time because they have very long-term shelf lives. Of course, you can put them away and save them for the future. So order your seeds whenever. The bigger thing when you order seeds is... Are you ordering seeds that you're going to plant outside directly, like beans or peas or something like that? Or are you ordering seeds where you're going to want to start your plants indoors? And if you're doing that, what you're going to want to do is you want to, you want to figure out how long these plants need to be started. So, for instance, peppers and tomatoes you generally want to, to start and, and grow out for about 6 to 10 weeks before you put them out. So what you want to do then, if you want to grow something out for 8 weeks... You find your average last frost date. You can go to like Farmer's Almanac or something to do that and say, okay, so my average last frost date is, and then count back, you want to do eight weeks, count back six, and that's when you should start your seeds, and then you don't put them out till two weeks after your average last frost date if they're a, a plant that in general is damaged by frost. And that's all going to depend on the varieties. And when you, when you buy seeds or you read seed catalogs, you're going to see instructions generally, you know, plant two weeks, plant, put plants outside two weeks after last frost date. The other thing you want to look at is time from, uh, time from seed and time from transplant to productivity. So if you have something that takes 110 days, and you're in Pennsylvania, you're not going to have this problem, but if you live way up north, you need 110 days of frost-free weather, and you live in a very far northern climate where you only have 90 days, you're going to have to look at some kind of protection to get it out early or extend the season late. So those are the big things there. On plants, let me just say with plants, I would 
advise most people do not order plants in the mail. Buy them from a local nursery, support your local business, and you're going to get plants that are specifically adapted to your area. Caveat, unless, big unless, with giant capital letters if I was typing it online. Uh, unless you can't get the type of plant you're looking for. So, for instance, if you want to grow ground cherries, I have never seen ground cherries in a local nursery around here. Whether it's a box store or a small independent operation, just don't find them. Now, since I start my own seeds, no big deal. Uh, but if I wanted, like let's say I was having problems starting seeds, and I wanted to order those plants, well, uh, Seeds of Change I can order them from, and Seed Savers Exchange, I can order them from both of those. So those are, you know, the plants I would only order varieties that you can't get locally. If you're doing that, you're probably not going to have a problem because most uh, institutions will only ship at an appropriate time anyway. You'll be fairly late in the year before they'll ship to you because they want to ensure that the plants aren't damaged by frost. When you buy from a local nursery, <clears throat> generally they're not going to start selling too far before it's safe to plant. Now, you can always ask while you're there. Those folks that run, especially the small local ones, are a wealth of information. You can come in and maybe they say, well, you know, you really should put them in the ground for two weeks, but I have them for sale already. Often, if you hadn't buy them, they'll put them aside for you and take care of them for another two weeks for you uh, because maybe you don't have the, the right environment. See, here's the thing. For plants to do well, Uh, especially as baby seedlings, they need some level of protection, they need enough sunlight, and your incandescent light bulbs in your house, and a little bit of sun through one window is not going to do it. That's why so many people start seedlings, and they get these little spindly things, they, they grow like four inches tall in like three days, but they're white, and then they fall over and die. That's because they're not getting enough light. That's what that is. Every single time you see a seedling get really skinny and grow really long or really tall and not really fill out, and it dies... Every time it's light, that's what does that. Very seldom do your seedlings fail due to nutrients uh, and things like that. One, because they have quite a bit of stored nutrient in the seed itself. And two, because you put them in potting soil, which is designed for starting seeds. So it's it's almost always light and temperature that are your enemy. So for starting your own seeds, you know, those are some, thi those are some things to consider. Uh, buying plants, you know, that's... But as far as seeds, I say now's the time. Now's the time you should be going through all the seed catalogs and figuring out what you want and go ahead and order it and get it in, in hand. And uh, for you in Pennsylvania, tomatoes and peppers, if you're going to start your own, uh, you should be starting your seeds within the next couple weeks. Uh, probably around February 14th, around Valentine's Day, uh, somewhere in between the 7th and 14th was when my grandfather always started his peppers and tomatoes and put them in the sunny window and out in the cold frame and brought them in at night if it was going to be too cold for the cold frame to keep them safe uh, overnight. And that was almost every day. I mean, they were out in the daytime and back in at nighttime into the shanty where the wood stove was. And, you know, that was kind of our setup. But um, if you're going to do it, basically what I'm telling you is you need a greenhouse or you need a window that gets sun all day long, or you need you know overhead UV lighting. And, and those are the only ways you're going to do this successfully. As a second-year gardener, with peppers and tomatoes especially, because they're so common and so easy to get, I would probably stick to going out and buying pre-started plants. Some other things you might want to consider in Pennsylvania, though, you could put out, let's say, two weeks prior to your last average frost date, would be things like broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage. You could probably go three weeks with those. And because uh, they'll handle the frost, especially if you just use a floating row cover and give them a little cover when it's when it's really cold when they're young. Uh, but that's the time to plant uh, your broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, uh, Brussels sprouts, anything like that, 
because they're going to produce really well for, for you up until early summer, and when that hot weather comes in, uh, they're going to be spent for the year, and you can replace them with something else. So hopefully that helps you. Uh, I probably am going to do Thursday. I said I had a cool show for Thursday, all about spring, getting ready for spring starting now. Uh, I think it's a good time to do that. Great question. Let's go ahead and uh, take another one. Thanks for that one. Hi, Jack. I'm a big fan of your show. I'm calling to get your opinion on composting toilets. Uh, we're finally to the place where we have a nice little piece of land that we're going to start working and improving. And first step is to put a small cabin out there. And before the structure goes up, one, I'm thinking about sanitation, what's best. Um, two, also thinking about my wife, who perhaps isn't far along in the thought process path about our vacation retreat turning into a bug-out retreat. So composting toilets versus outhouse versus any other advice you may have, I'd love to hear about it. Thank you. Great question, and it's probably something we don't talk about enough here, sanitation uh, for the long term. When you look at a remote location where you're not tied into city sewer like what we have up in Arkansas, you pretty much have three choices. You have a septic system, you have a composting toilet, and you have an outhouse. And anything else is kind of a variation thereof. It really is. Um, you know, leach fields and stuff like that, uh, open leach fields were not really encouraged, but, you know, they kind of can be done. But it's really a septic system. And here's how I feel about it. With what we have in Penn, what we have in Arkansas right now, we have a septic system. We have that because when I bought the house, it was already installed. I know for a fact it was extremely expensive because the ground's very rocky and it took a lot of work to put a tank in and you had to do a leach field and everything else to go with it in, in that environment and it was tough and the well was very expensive as well. So had I moved in there and put my own place in there, I would have went with a composting toilet. Overall, I don't have any problem with an individual septic tank or septic system. But if you're just like kind of setting up a little cabin and you're just getting started with a piece of land, uh, money's at a premium. And I think the best case to make to your wife is let's keep five to seven thousand dollars in our pocket and here's how those numbers work out. A good composting toilet's going to run somewhere between twelve hundred and twenty two hundred dollars. Really top of the line, new modern version. They do use electricity. So you do have to have electricity, whether it's from solar or grid tire or what have you, but you have to have that electricity. But uh, very low draw, uh, typical thing that a person with a full solar system, an uh, off-grid system uses, so nothing that the average decent solar system is not going to be able to handle as far as the draw on them. But that helps to keep them dried out. It keeps them odor-free. You have a vent that goes outside of the house, and that vents off. Anything needs to be vented off. So that's, let's say, again, $1,200 to $2,200. A septic tank is going to cost you somewhere around $1,500 to $2,000 for the tank. The installation in a best-case scenario, meaning I can pull in my trailer, drop my backhoe, I got soft, beautiful, rich, easy-to-work-in dirt, and I'm going to dig the hole and, and make it happen and put the leach field and all uh, in for you. It's going to be between four and $7,000 and up. So let's say we got the best case scenario we can for you. You're looking at installing all the cost of materials, labor, everything else, somewhere between five and nine thousand dollars for the average septic system. Uh, the cost of a composting toilet, twelve hundred to twenty two hundred dollars, depending on what you want. Okay, so there's five grand we don't have to spend, and we got to do something with our waste. So that's that's how I'd make the case to your wife. Now the, the next thing. Composting toilets are not the nasty things that people think of. They're not a chemical toilet like those portajons that reek and stink and they keep dumping blue stuff in them and, and they're just nasty. Even when they don't stink, they just smell bad. Um, they have really no odor at all. 
Uh, they don't have to be empty very often. That's probably the one thing that's going to put most people off is emptying them, which is kind of foolish because what you empty looks nothing like what goes in. It looks like compost. It has no real odor, and it can be used for fertilizer. It can just be dumped in the woods. You can do whatever you want with it. Um, but your, your, your emptying time is, is fairly long in between, from my understanding. I've never owned one, so I'm, I'm speaking here from research only. Uh, but I think they're probably the best option for someone in your scenario. They also, as long as you have some kind of off-grid power source, they'll just continue to work and work and work no matter what. I can say the same thing about a septic system, though. In fact, I can tell you this. As long as I have a way to get water into my toilet, my septic system works without electricity. So septic, to me, is a better logistical solution. I think a composting toilet is definitely a more earth-friendly solution. And uh, either way, I think this makes sense. And even if, let's, look, look, let's, let's say you wanted to have two bathrooms in a larger, like a mid-sized cabin or something... Two composting toilets is still less than one septic system, not to mention all the plumbing and stuff you do not install uh, for your drains and things like that. So just a, just a thought there. That's my two cents on the issue, and I think the way you sell your wife on it is earth-friendly and less expensive. And every penny we don't spend on having a backhoe come in here and dig a hole and build a leach field and doing all this, we have to upgrade the cabin, we have to do to plant trees, to do whatever it is that you want to do. It'll make your money go further. And remember, first rule of modern survivalism. Everything we do to prep should improve our lives today, even if nothing goes wrong. That's what this does for you. That's why I think it's a good choice. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is John from Lancaster, PA. Uh, I want to know more about this ground nut that you're talking about. I can't find uh, anything on Wikipedia. I would like to know its technical name and more about it. Um, that was my question. I have uh, three more comments. Uh, I re I'm really enjoying my Excalibur dehydrator that I bought at your recommendation. It's doing wonderful. I uh, bought the nine tray. Um, I'm looking forward to purchasing my uh, Berkey water filter system very soon. And also, there was a caller, uh, Chris from Chester, PA, uh, on episode 568, called about his first deer that he shot on state game land. Uh, this year, I also shot my first deer on state game land, just south of Reading. Um, it was a six-point buck uh, with the right main beam missing a point or two. Either way, I'm still happy with it. Uh, I've hunted for quite a few years and have not shot anything. So kind of ran close to home there, hearing about that other guy. Um, I'm making dry venison out of the two rear hind quarters and the one back strap and everything else. I'm making into my own jerky with my new dehydrator. So, all right, thanks for the good podcast. Bye. Well, first, all you guys hunting this year just making me jealous. I just have not, with everything going on, haven't gotten out and hunted this year at all. I'm really glad to hear about your success and some other folks' success with deer uh, this year. And uh, I may go out and shoot a couple hogs uh, before we even move and just uh, uh, t take the meat on up to Arkansas with us if I, if I can find the time to do that. But, uh It's been real tough this year, so congratulations on that first deer. And uh, that Pennsylvania deer herd, since Gary Alt has taken over, I think is really doing better on the buck side of things. He brought in some point restrictions and things like that to help some of the younger bucks get through. He increased the doe harvest. For those of y'all don't know, I mean, I consider Dr. Gary Alt like a, a rock star in the world of conservation and big game hunting. When uh, this guy took over the uh, Pennsylvania black bear population back in the 70s, 
Uh, Pennsylvania was one of the least desirable states to go bear hunting. There just wasn't that great of a population. The bears that were there weren't really that big. And uh, they're kind of hanging by, by a, a toenail, except in certain counties and areas. And without really causing a lot of problems for the people that live in Pennsylvania, uh, with bears becoming too invasive, he really made Pennsylvania into one of the premier places to take a black bear as a trophy. Not the highest percentage, but really great, stable, and beautiful bears up there. And uh, they gave him the uh, deer population in the late 90s, early 2000s, and he's done a good job. So uh, hats off to Gary Alt. For those that have never heard his name, you might want to Google him. This guy knows what he's doing. Uh, on your question about ground nut, The Latinic name for it is Apius Americana. That's A-P-I-O-S, Apius Americana. And it is one of the premier plants that we should all be growing as far as I'm concerned. It's something you don't want to harvest until its second year. And that's one of the things that's limited its production. The great place to get some of them if you can't find them wild in your area and harvest the tubers and transplant them yourself is from a place called sandmountainherbs.com. Again, sandmountainherbs.com. I'll put a link to their groundnut page today. Uh, but the groundnut, let me just read to you the description of it on Sand Mountain Herbs, because it'll make sure I don't forget anything. Groundnuts are the only nut in the world that grows below the ground. Peanuts are not nuts, by the way. The plant sends shoot into the earth and forms pods. Allow this to develop for two months, the plant will turn yellow. It is a highly nutritious plant that has two and a half times the protein of an egg, which is considered by some to be the perfect protein. Only a few amino acids are lacking in groundnut, but milk has them and makes a good drink when you're eating groundnuts. So if you grow groundnuts and you store powdered milk, I'm on my own now off of the, the page here, you have a complete protein profile without using any meat whatsoever. It's one of the few ways you can do that. Things like quinoa and uh, amaranth are, are the others. Also, uh, hemp seed. Hemp seed is probably the most nutritious um, uh, crop you could ever eat. And I'm not talking about dope. I'm talking about rope hemp. It's still illegal to grow in the United States, but you can buy the seeds. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a great protein source, but this is one you can grow. Um, back to the, uh, to the little, little uh, thing here on it. Uh, some people around the world use it to make a highly nutritious flour for bread. Known to help people with diabetes and other sugar disorders, just simply eat a handful before your meal, and it helps to maintain sugar levels in the blood and can benefit uh, further benefit high levels of niacin. People with obesity can benefit from it because this herb uh, it tends to curb the appetite. Studies have shown uh, that it helps with hemophilia. It's also useful in diarrhea caused due to uh, nic nicotinic acid deficiency. So that means nic nicotinic acid is niacin. So since it has niacin, uh, if you're niacin deficient and that's causing uh, uh, diarrhea, it will cure it. I guess cure is not the word that the government wants you to use, but let's say you have it, you take it, it goes away. To me, that's a cure. Um, eat the nuts with goat's milk and squeeze uh, a squeeze of lemon. It will benefit the patient highly. The oil is good to put on the face before going to bed for acne prevention and nourishment. Anyway, I mean, my bigger reason, about, so there's all the great stuff it'll do for you, but my big thing with groundnut is, one, high in protein, two, it tastes really good. Uh, roasted, they're kind of like little mini nutty potatoes. These are like everything that Jerusalem artichoke, artichoke kind of should be and isn't. They don't get mushy like a Jerusalem artichoke does. Um, they're just an outstanding plant. We used to harvest them wild uh, in the woodlands in Pennsylvania all the time. I've got some here that I've got started growing up in Arkansas. They seem to be doing very well. I'll be ordering more this year from Sand Mountain Herbs. I want to establish a really big patch of these things. They grow kind of like a sprawling vine. Um, as long as you keep them in, in fertile, loose soil, 
and, and you know keep them irrigated to a reasonable level, uh, you almost can't screw them up. The big thing is, again, letting them go the first year. Don't harvest anything your first year. In the second year, try to harvest only about half to uh, three quarters of your tubers, and they'll just keep with that. They'll just keep coming back over and over and over again. Another thing you could do is go ahead and, and harvest just pretty much everything and kind of separate out 10 to 20 percent and replant them. But if you do that, you don't have this. You're kind of disturbing the root system. So what you want to try to do is, is kind of dig in and around and leave some with plant top showing completely undisturbed and keep expanding your plot. Maybe whatever you do harvest, you replant 10%, keep making your plot bigger. Uh, once you have a fairly large plot of these things, you can go out hard. Here's the other thing. This is what's beautiful about them. You can harvest them any time of the year. If you do a potato pile, the problem with that is they grow, the plant dies back, and you better harvest them. Or they kind of turn to mush and start growing and, and replicating and things like that. And they're not really good. Um, once you see the ground nut growing, if there's a tuber down there, it's edible. And you can leave it down there as long as you want to and it will stay edible. So you can make this a true survival patch in your permaculture arrangement where maybe you draw some of it once in a while. But you can keep expanding it, expanding, expanding, make it grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's there like an emergency protein source waiting in the ground. That's one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of groundnut. Uh, it should be more commercially grown, honestly. I think it's a great crop if somebody were to market it well. But because of the two-year process to get it into production, it's really never caught on commercially. At one time, it actually was very popular uh, when it was being shipped back to Europe. But it just kind of fizzled out. Never regained itself. So again, Apius Americana, uh, the groundnut. Check them out, folks. Again, I'll put a link to them on Sand Mountain Herbs. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Ben from Ohio. I had a question to see if you were involved with the Survive! Exclamation point application that I have recently found for my Droid X phone. I uh, hadn't mentioned it on the air, so I just wanted to see if uh, this was uh, your brainchild or someone else's and if you were even aware of it thanks bye uh, the answer is yes sort of uh, the application was actually developed by a listener and uh, they did all the programming does all the updates and things like that it is available at the Android marketplace you go there you search for uh, survive I can't provide a link to that because it doesn't work like the uh, the the iTunes uh, apps for the iPhone do where like it has its own page or whatever I don't use Android so I don't really understand exactly how that works uh, I'd put a link on the site, but again, I don't have a place to link to. But if you have an Android uh, Android phone, you, however you get your apps, just search for Survive. And you can find our app and download it, and you can follow the show and things like that. I know the next question is going to be from like a million people. What are you going to do with an iPhone app when somebody out there does what this listener does and develops one? Because I can't afford ten dollars to $20,000 to make an application, and that's about what it costs to do that. There are some turnkey options out there. I'm looking at one. The problem is that Apple has started to just reject anything that's turnkey. So basically you're plugging RSS fees and contact information, kind of like a wizard that makes an app. Apple's not real keen on those. So this, this latest company that I'm working with to do this, until I see them actually get a few apps approved, which they haven't yet, I'm not real you know, heavy on finishing up my app and, and putting it out there. But if somebody would like to independently develop one, I'll make the same deal I did with this listener. He has ads on it. It makes him a few bucks here and there. We're doing a revenue share. I get 10%. He gets 90%. So if somebody would like to develop an iPhone app, if you're an iPhone developer, 
uh, iPhone application developer, and you'd like to do a, uh, a survival podcast application and keep 90% of the revenue, get in touch with me, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. But I simply cannot afford the development fees uh, that it costs to put an app together for the iPhone. The other thing is that we have to make it do something more than just download the podcast and the forum and, and YouTube because those are all RSS functions and part of why Apple rejects the turnkey stuff is because you can do all that with your iPhone without an app. I mean, that's the big thing. So maybe throw an herb database or something in there or some things to make it unique. Uh, but again, anybody out there that, that develops applications for iPhones would be interested in this, send me an email. Those of you on Android, you can get the app. It is free for download at the Android Marketplace. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Aisha calling from Alberta, Canada. I just have a quick question about uh, bug out locations. I see that you were talking about your moving to Arkansas, which is your actual bug-out location. So I was just wondering, what are you going to do for a bug-out location? Once you guys head up there to Arkansas and move there, will you look for another bug-out location, or is that going to be your home slash bug-out? Like, what do you think people who live in the city, or I should say people who decide to move to the country, Should they just have their homes as bug-out locations as well? Anyway, um, whatever you think, uh, just uh, give me an answer if you can. Thanks. Bye. Well, the answer to that, and it's a great question, is a little bit simple and a little bit complicated at the same time. Uh, the overall answer is, for the past six years, uh, since we, we purchased the place and we've had the place available and we started stocking stuff at the place and we were prepared to go there, If anything happened that was anything other than a short-term regional thing, anything that was going to really change the world in any way, shape, or form, what would we do? We'd go there. And why would we go there? Well, it's away from major population centers. It's an easy-to-defend location. It's well-stocked. Uh, we, can, we can be there for a year and uh, be fine and, and not really need anybody else. And uh, there's some things we really want to do to increase its long-term sustainability, but it's kind of an ideal location without living out in the middle of Idaho. Now, if you live out in the middle of Idaho mountains, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, doesn't work for my family. It definitely don't work for my wife. It was hard enough to get her to go five hours away from where we're at, uh, let alone uh, 15 or 30. So it was the ideal location given the circumstances, which means even if something goes wrong after we're there, we're already in the ideal location. So Why would we want to bug out? Well, we probably wouldn't. And I, I'll tell you the truth is, for most people, bugging in is probably the best option anyway, unless we're in a true meltdown situation. Uh, my biggest fear that would require a bug out is a pandemic. And I can't think of a better location to be than where we are for a pandemic, because we would still have reasonable access if it, if it was feasible for medical care, and yet we could isolate ourselves very much and, and avoid the exposure. So... Uh, it's a great place. It's a great place to bug out, too. That's why we bought it. That's why it's part of the plan. So we don't really need another bug out location. Now the complicated part. With rational thought, there is an old saying in survivalism and in just uh, handymanism and the military and anything else you can think of that involves uh, practical get-things-done application, and that is two is one and one is none. Meaning if I have two generators and one blows up, I still have one. If I have one generator and one blows up, the lights go out, no power, and that's it. It ain't as easy to do with a house. and it Or even just a piece of land. But to me, it makes sense long term. So, we're probably looking at about a year 
to a year and a half before we get the things done at our current location where because let's put it this way as my dad used to tell me every time I asked for anything more to stick a gum son I ain't made of money and, and you know he part of that wasn't to me and I know I ain't made of money either so I can't just go out and buy another piece of land but I could I mean it, it, the one thing I'm willing to take debt on there's a question later on about debt here the one thing I'm willing to take debt on is a home or land within our means, and since we're completely debt-free otherwise, uh, and we're going to be cutting our expenses so much by moving there, we could do it. I just don't want to. So we will shop for the next year or two for an ideal piece of land as a secondary location. And for me, it will be more of, let's say, a wildlife management area, deer lease, hunting area, camping spot, that type of thing. Uh, but it will still be somewhere we can go. We have the RV. We could go there. I probably won't put a structure on it. I would like to bring, if I can find something I can bring power to, uh, that would be great. Uh, and keep anything that's stocked there underground and unseen, uh, keep it posted again, making it look like a deer lease. And I would want to get something one to two hours maximum away from where we are so I can get up there often and use it often and hunt and, and, and what have you on it. So that would become kind of our fallback location too. But the reality is, We're far enough away from things that at some point, regardless of what's going on, you have to make your stand. And in the big picture of things, where we're going is where we would make our stand. And for a lot of you, you may have to do that in suburbia. And if you do, fine. But I'll tell you what, the bigger the city you live in, the more important it is that you have a fallback location. Uh, those of you that live in places like Chicago and New York uh, and Los Angeles, if we ever have something really bad happen... I had a guy recently on the blog say, don't just tell me I'm doomed. Tell me what to do about it. And I'm telling you, I have told you what to do. You have to have a plan to get the hell out. And, and I don't like to make it that blunt sometimes, but sometimes I have to. The people that believe you're going to be able to bug in in the middle of Manhattan in a major national disaster, something huge like a pandemic, like uh, a lights-out scenario, uh, or anything like that that really is national or global in scope, the complete currency collapse in the several years uh, following that, those places are going to be death traps. They really are. And you have to have a plan to get out. Um, if you're away from the major population centers, in all but you know the real end of the world scenarios, you're probably going to be able to get by by bugging in. Again, my biggest fear, my biggest fear for people, is a major lethal pandemic. And that's where proximity and close proximity to others becomes a true liability. Uh, but, you know, good question. Hopefully I've answered it, uh, you know, to a way where it makes sense. Uh, but we will always try to have two locations. We also just, just like everybody else out there, I can't do, just do everything I want all at the same time. We have to put into prioritization and things like building decks, putting in fencing, uh, having a machine come in and doing some terracing and, and building some swales for me, um, putting our greenhouse in our aquaponics system. Uh, things like that that make our homestead more sustainable, those are going to be far more priority than me getting, you know, 20 acres of land uh, a couple hours out in the middle of the Washtaws. Um, so they're going to come first. But we'll shop. And with land and bug-out location, anything with real estate and real property, folks, remember this, shopping's always free. Always be shopping. Because even though I said we wouldn't do it, if I find that perfect piece of land for that perfect price between, you know, now and the next six months, We will make a move and we'll buy it if we find the right opportunity. Um, and again, shopping's free. And that means if you're always shopping for land, and we do this constantly, my wife and I 
Love the website United Country. We'll be sitting on Saturday watching TV, just talking. Both of us with laptops. Just and hey, did you see this one? Did you see that one? We're not really looking to buy anything, but we're educating ourselves to real estate and prices and what you can expect. And that way, when you see a deal, you really know it's a deal. You don't just feel like it's a deal. Uh, anyway, great question. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi there, Jack. Mark Carlin calling from Campbellford, Ontario. I just had a couple of questions for you. I know you're looking for some easy ones. Some days this might be easy for you. Um, <clears throat> question one was planting a lot of um, trees and shrubs. Have you got an easy way to identify those with tags that we can look at in the future without them rubbing off with the weather? Second thing, I want to compost in my greenhouse that I built at your urging. Um, and I'm worried about rodents getting into some raccoons, skunks, and rats and that sort of thing. Any suggestions or thoughts on how to control those types of things in the greenhouse would be great. Thanks a lot. Love the show. Bye-bye. Actually, on the tree tags, it's interesting you should ask that because I was just thinking about that myself with uh, as much planning as I'm going to be doing in the next year or two years, honestly, with all the swales and all the uh, landscaping that we're going to be doing up there. Um, not just, you know, is this an apple or is this a gooseberry? What variety is it and, and stuff like that? Having a long-term marker until you kind of really learn it to where you know what everything is is important. And I was, uh, you know, thumbing through while we were sitting up there in between work and uh, one of my favorite catalogs, which is Peaceful Valley Farms. And they have um, these plant tags that are zinc. And they have like this white etching on the front. And you can write on them with a Sharpie, and they're about as permanent as anything could be for this application. And um, you get, I think they're like a dollar seven a piece or something like this. And I mean, compared to something that's like plastic or whatnot, it's, uh, it seems a little bit expensive. But for trees and for something that you're going to use uh, long term and you want to last for season after season after season, are probably about the best thing I can think of. They're called, if you go on their plant, they're called Zinc Botanical Plant Markers. And they have ones that are 20 inches high, and they have ones that are 10 inches high. Uh, and the 10-inch ones are 89 cents a piece. If you buy like 25, you get them for 80 cents a piece. That's probably just about anything you would need for personal use. I think the taller ones might be for like a, a nursery, not maybe a nursery, but like a botanical garden or something like that. They had like, like a walk-through area where they wanted them higher and higher visibility where you probably on your own property would want them, you may be even a little bit concealed where you'd have to know where to look to find them. So that's the best marker I can. Now let's talk about composting in the greenhouse. Um, number one way to keep rodents out of your greenhouse is keep uh, your doors and everything during you know the daytime and the nighttime and everything else closed up and any venting you do, do it on the roof. That's a big part of it right there. Uh, but, I mean, compost piles in general should not attract a lot of rodents. We don't really have problems with rodents in our compost pile. One of the biggest things you can do is whenever you're composting something other than, let's say, straw or grass clippings or something like that, when it's uh, any kind of food that something might want to eat, make sure you pull back a layer and drop it into your compost pile and push a layer over. That's going to help it break down faster anyway. And by not having things like, you know, I don't know, chopped up kale or whatever you have left over or, or pepper cores or apple cores exposed, uh, you're not going to be big on attracting rodents to begin with. Uh, but again, most compost piles really don't have a rodent problem. It's just not that big of an issue uh, in general because it's not really what they're looking for. 
Uh, you don't compost cheese and, you know, uh, you know, you're probably not composting a big pile of corn that's dried out and, and, and perfect for animals to feed on and, and, and whatnot. Uh, and you also are looking when you're composting in your greenhouse to get that pile active fast because you want heat. So what I'm saying there is you kind of want to have a bunch of stuff ready to go and put that pile together. It's not your typical compost pile, a slow action pile where you just go out there and throw a banana peel on it every day. Um, that's, that's a less efficient way to compost. So, uh, and, and the reason for that is the whole purpose of composting in your greenhouse is the temperature in the center of that pile gets pretty warm. And by having that go on, it helps heat your greenhouse throughout the winter. An active pile like that that's hot, that's cooking, is not much of a rodent attractant at all. So there you go. That's the best I can do for you on that one. Let's go ahead and take another call. Good one there, though. I appreciate you. Hi, Jack. This is David from South Carolina. I'm calling because I wanted some advice on getting a truck. Uh, I've never really owned a truck before, and I'm not really that mechanically inclined, but that's something I'd like to change and get into doing more of my own repairs. Um, I'm looking for a 4x4 diesel, something affordable that I don't have to sink too much money into. And I uh, was thinking about getting a used military CUCV truck. I think it's a model M1008. Uh, I was hoping since you were an Army mechanic, you would be able to offer up some information about uh, the series of vehicles and what your recommendations are. Uh, my rationale is that it's a good off-road vehicle. It offers really great towing, although it's through the purdle hitch and not through a ball hitch. I'd have to change that. Uh, it has relatively low miles and easy parts availability, uh, And whereas the downsides are that uh, usually where people try to get them from government liquidation auctions, they've really been uh, torn up, so I'd need to get one probably through someone who has restored it. But I still think I should be able to get a decent one, you know, for around four or five grand. Anyway, hoping to hear your thoughts on it. Thank you. Bye. Well, the the Cuck V C U C V, or so we used to call them in the military, is a Cuck V. It depends uh, what you're going to get yourself into with one of them. I'll give you an example. Uh, you mentioned the 1008. That's the GM, you know, call it Chevrolet model. Uh, those were built mostly. Most of them are from the mid to late 80s. In 1990, late 1990, I was working in Panama as a soldier, as a mechanic. <clears throat> and even though the, uh, the Cuck V was below my kind of vestal on the maintenance, I was a heavy vehicle mechanic. So I worked on the really large stuff, uh, the 917 truck tractors, which would be like your, your typical tractor trailer, 18 wheeler, uh, variable reach rough terrain forklifts, the big giant Hemets and stuff like that, scrapers, uh, some construction equipment, the, the heavy, heavy duty stuff, tires that you needed a forklift to change. That was my level of vehicle. But because we were in a, a stage where we were actually turning all the cut V's in and getting Humvees, kind of all hands on deck, so to speak, working on uh, the cuffies to get them ready to be turned in, because we had to basically fix anything that was wrong with them to be able to turn them in. But that was 1990. So it's 21 years later, and most of the surplus cuffies on the market are... Um, are from that generation. There are there's a there's actually a second and third generation Cugby that I know nothing about other than what I've read online about them because they didn't exist back when I was in the military. And if you can find one of them, you're probably better off. So first thing is how old is it? The next thing is I want to tell you how soldiers treat vehicles. They beat the living shit out of them. I just flat out. Um, they're very good about maintaining them. The mechanics are, 
But the individual operators beat the hell out of trucks, especially something like a simple transport vehicle like a Cug V or a Humvee. Um, the, the guys that are running dump trucks and stuff like that, some really good ones and some really bad ones. But basically, their job is to use that truck. So they learn the truck. They become more familiar with it. Most of them are what they call 88 Mike, which is in the Army anyways. There's a truck driver, a truck driver, they're trained to drive a truck. The people that drive something like a cuck feed, that's just, you know, the TAMS clerk or the, the person that works as an orderly at the, the, the CQ office or, or whatever. Yeah, any soldier can end up assigned to a vehicle with very little training and they're hard on them. And then they're responsible for the general maintenance, checking things, letting the mechanic know when something at the mechanic level needs to be done and things like that. And they're not, I mean, most units are pretty strict on trying to check that, but soldiers get good at hiding things. So all I'm saying is they're beat. They're old and they're beat. So you want to find one with a good, strong running engine and a good body. Most of the bodies are in great shape. One thing that mar military has always been good about is painting. I mean, there's there's barracks so you can go take a, a knife, and you go to the wall in the barracks, and you push the knife into the paint, and the daggone knife blade will go a quarter inch on layer upon layer upon layer of paint. When you don't have anything else for a soldier to do, you have them paint. There's a chip on a vehicle, you paint it. The paint they use on those vehicles is called cark paint. It's about as indestructible as anything, so the vehicles usually have decent bodies. So strong running engine, good body, good to go. There are 24-volt vehicles, but they have resistors in them that knock all of the peripherals down to 12 volts using firewall and resistors. So that means that your standard 12-volt stuff will generally work in most instances in just about every area of the vehicle. Cost-wise, there's a place somewhere near here that I think sells them for about 3500 bucks. I almost thought about buying one just because for $3,500, bucks, why not? Um, so I can't tell you there's anything wrong with them. I'm telling you, you really got to do a good once-over with them. I would, if you're going to buy one, you know, find some place that sells them or what have you, I would say, look, I'm gonna test drive it, and I'll tell you where I'm going to test drive it to. I'm going to test drive it to a good diesel shop, a good place where people work on diesels. I'm going to have this thing gone over, and I'm going to know everything wrong with it before I make you an offer on it. Or before we discuss your price or what have you. And it's going to probably cost you about 75 to 150 bucks to have it gone over. It's worth it. Get it done. Especially since you don't know what to look for. And I tell you, I don't care if you're buying a truck, a car, or anything. If you're buying a used vehicle, and I don't care if it comes with a warranty, take it to a mechanical shop that's not associated with the person you're buying from in any way. Say, hey, you got a place I can take this? And wherever he tells you, go somewhere else. Pay the 75 to 150 bucks and tell them, I want to know anything and everything wrong with this. And tell them, just so you got to hedge your bet with these, because mechanics will often uh, find things don't really need to be done, right? Because they want to sell you maintenance. They want to sell you work. Tell them, I, I don't own this. I'm test driving it. I'm going to go make an offer on it. I need a pre-purchase inspection. All right, that's going to keep them honest, and they're, but they're going to nitpick the hell out of it for you. And, and that way you can go back on with that when you negotiate. And that's pretty much the best advice I can give you. Uh, the newer versions, there's like a, a version 2 and a version 3. I think so the Air Force has used them all the way up to like 2002 or something. So if you can find that, man, that's that's great. I think they have some with radios in them now, a little bit more luxurious for our, our, uh, our, our service members. Uh, if you find an Air Force one, it's probably beat less than an Army one. Uh, just the mentality of the soldier versus the airman. We're pretty brutal on things as soldiers. Um, But they're a good vehicle. Uh, I would recommend them as a as a great choice. I even the guy that told me about the place that's local here. I can't remember his name. I'll see if I can find him in the comments thread. 
But this is what he was he was doing. He had some kind of setup for kind of basically cooking his own diesel fuel, and he's running a mixture of 50% used motor oil and 50% diesel. But he has like a centrifuge and everything to clean it out and be able to do this. But uh, once he's got his whole setup going, he says he's you know basically paying half price for diesel fuel because he gets the, the motor oil for free. Because uh, it's just waste motor oil from a, you know any place that does oil changes, you can get it from, and you ain't gonna do that with a new vehicle. So that's another uh, strong point for them. So built tough, uh, and, and then if you find anything that's a Chrysler model, I think they were the 880 series, uh, cut V from the Chrysler Corporation versus GM. Those were made in the late 70s, early 80s, so they're the oldest and beat the hell the most. And I would definitely recommend the GM models from the late 80s uh, is probably your best value, but a good inspection done prior to purchase. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. This is Andy out here at Fort Bragg. wanted to say, as, as always, thank you so much for your show. It's meant a lot to me and my family. Uh, just this last year, um, it's been about a year since I found the Survival Podcast, and it seems so overwhelming, so I decided to take two things. One was water. And uh, it's one of the cheaper things, and it's just nice knowing that we have some water, and now we can build from that. But specifically, thank you so much for, for your comments on that if you're in debt, you're really not a survivalist, and if you have no idea when you're going to be out of debt, then, uh, you know, you have no clues. So basically, um, what I'm getting at is is that from there, you got me hooked on Dave Ramsey, getting out of debt, got my wife on board yesterday, the light went off, the holy smokes, we owe debt. You know, we're, we, like, are in financial bondage to others so thank you so much because now I've got a plan the family's working on it and uh boy what a relief when i can finally get rid of that debt so thank you so much appreciate it bye well andy first of all you, you've called you've written you've done things several times and thank you for being a, a long-time listener of the show and a strong supporter of us and thank you for your service as well i appreciate you for that um on the water you know absolutely one of the best first steps because it does cost so little and it's so easy to do and even 20 gallons of water, if you go out and buy it at Walmart for 69 cents a gallon and stick it in a closet somewhere, at least you've done something and you start to feel the empowerment of having some level of preparation beyond what everybody else does. So great first step for anybody out there. On the debt, um, I, I really think that what your wife experienced is something that we all have to experience if we're going to get ourselves free of debt. And it requires something of people that we're generally not comfortable doing acceptance of something that's horrific that doesn't have to be accepted there's so many people that walk through their whole life in debt and they're going to be in debt till they die and they make jokes about it and they make light of it and they never accept it for the horror that it is so they dig themselves deeper and deeper into that hole and deeper and deeper to the bondage of that hole and they convince themselves that it's what everybody does and it's just okay but it only takes a second a, a, literally a second of true acceptance to switch your mind. And once that switch happens, it's very, it's like the, the, the blue pill, red pill thing in the Matrix. Once you take the pill, and once you, it kind of switches on and you go, I remember. I remember before I had this thing, how I was never going to do this thing. And now that I have, I understand it. And it literally is a light. Just like Andy said, it's a light. And those of you that are in these you know, marriages or relationships, partnerships, where one side is cool with the debt and the other side is trying to convince the other, that's what it really comes down to. You, you can't just initially talk about, hey, look how great it's going to be. 
Because that's not the problem for the person clinging to the debt and going, the debt's good, I love the debt, the debt's wonderful. Um, that person is really resisting acceptance of how bad things really are. And that's what you have to do. You have to sit down and say, look, let me just explain to you where we're at. Here's all our minimum payments. Here's how much money we owe. And if we don't spend one more penny with debt, and we just keep doing what we're doing, it's going to be 2019 before we're debt free. And we're continuing to spend money, so it's going to be longer than 2019. And then you let that sit. You don't push. Eventually that person for themselves, you plant that seed, they're going to go, 2019 is a long way away. Holy crap. And it's that holy crap moment that you need to get the person out of this mentality that debt is good. And you get on a plan to get out of it. The other thing is, I have people make comments like, well, if you're loaded with money, getting debt free is easy. I want to make sure that when I tell people to get debt free, they understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying go pay off all your debt tomorrow. Even if you have the cash, it might not be the right thing to do if it's all your cash and you have no cash emergency whatsoever left. Now, taking a significant chunk and paying down a big bite to get yourself on a kickstart may make sense, but I don't want you completely cash poor and having no cash and no reserves and no nothing and no emergency fund and nothing and then trying to pay off your debt with everything you've scraped out of that, still owing a thousand bucks and having no money. That's probably not good either. But what I am saying is the same thing that leads you to the holy crap moment leads you to freedom. You go, okay, I don't want to be in debt until 2019. But one thing I know we have to do is we have to stop spending money on debt right now. No more debt. Zero. Stop. Now, what, what year do I want my freedom? Okay, it's 2011. I'd like to be free by 2014. That's three years. How much do I have to pay on everything to get there? It's the plan and execution of the plan that's important. It might take you three years to get out. If it took you 15 years to get in, consider yourself lucky. You have to look at eliminating debt like natural uh, health care. If you're sick and you don't feel good and you have a headache and you take a painkiller, it makes your headache go away like that, but the underlying problem is still there. With debt, there's no quick painkiller. The painkiller is we'll go buy more crap and be happy and pretend it's not really there, and the underlying problem gets worse. If we're going to like rebalance your body with, with natural remedies, it might take six months to a year because maybe you spent, if you're 40 years old, 40 years screwing your body up. So one year to fix what 40 years of, of neglect caused is really short term. If you're overweight and you're 40 years old and you're carrying 40 extra pounds, basically one year equaled one pound. Now you probably didn't do it that way. You're probably good until you're about 20 and then start to put it on and seesaw back and forth. But if you have 40 extra pounds of weight on you, you can't take it off and be done with it next week. And even if you did, it's coming back. But a, a, a proper regiment that slowly sheds 40 pounds over one year, that's real weight loss. It's going to stick. You're going to feel healthy. You're going to go on with your life. We have to view debt the same way. It's not about quick. And if you can do it quick, for all means and purposes, God, go ahead and do it and get rid of it. But for those of us that can't just say, okay, well, I've got savings. I have X in savings. I owe Y in debt. There's a big delta between the debt smaller than the savings. Very few people in debt problems have that going on because the debt is where the money went instead of the savings. If you, but if you do have that, you write the check, pay it off. You're done with it. You start saving again. If you don't have that, then you formulate the plan and you execute the plan. And that's why I tell you it's something that anybody can do. Anybody can be debt-free. 
If you can get in, you can get out. It might take you four years. It might take you whatever it takes you. It's worth it. Remember, the price of debt is not measured in interest. It's measured in years. And the longer you wait to start, the longer it'll take you to come out, the longer you'll stay in prison. So please, folks, please, please stop the insanity. And it is insane. Stop screwing your family. Stop screwing your own future. And get out. If you've, if you've heard me say this before, and you've said, well, I, I'm just not going to pay attention to that part. I'm talking to you today. Stop it. This guy can do it. He's a soldier. If a soldier can get out of debt, anybody can get out of debt. I don't care if you have to deliver pizzas, cut grass, pick up cans, get out. I promise you, one thing I will absolutely promise you, once you do it, you will not regret a second that you put into getting out. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack, I was just listening to your episode 573. You had a caller call in that had an uh, overabundance of orange of oranges and was asking your advice on what to do with them. Well, you missed the most obvious thing. Obviously, he should make a pneumatic cannon that was exactly orange caliber. <laughs> anyway, that's what I wanted to comment on. And I wanted to ask you if you knew anything about reloading primers, making the stuff that they put inside a primer, because most reloaders know stuff about powder, bullets, brass, and all that. But the, br the primers have to be... Uh, store-bought pretty much if you could go into that my brother claims that he knows how to, to uh, reload primers or to make the stuff that goes in primers anyway if you could touch on that that would be very interesting in an upcoming episode thank you have a good day actually I know very little if anything at all about reloading primers and, and making your own primers other than I do know it is possible and it can be done and uh, I don't think it's probably the best idea in a peacetime situation. When you look at reloading, reloading is actually an inherently safe operation as long as you don't do stupid things like smoke a cigarette while you're reloading. And if you if you blow yourself up or burn the hell out of yourself doing that, then I pretty much put that in the Darwin Awards level and you deserve what you've got because you're an idiot if you expose flame around gunpowder and primer. That's just dumb. Uh, so other than that, reloading is inherently safe. The most dangerous part of reloading, though, is actually priming. And there's some priming systems that basically stack the primers in a great big line, and I really don't like those, because if something sets the bottom primer off, they all go off, you've got a little mini pipe bomb right there. Um, I like priming systems that use a tray, and kind of let one primer at a time underneath, and they're never stacked on top of each other. So priming can, can be dangerous. So making primers, to me, can also be dangerous and probably a little more dangerous and probably a little bit more opportunity to blow the tip of a finger, uh, if not off, and cause severe injury. Uh, something you definitely, I mean, I, safety glass is always when doing a priming operation, so probably same thing with uh, making primers. Where do I put this as a skill? I put it as an informational skill. It's probably a good idea for us to know how to do it. Uh, I haven't taught myself yet. It's something I probably want to do long term. But I don't look at it as something we should probably be doing all the time. Primers are cheap, and they store forever as long as you keep them in a clean, dry uh, environment uh, and temperature-stable environment. That said, the reason I think it's a skill worth knowing is when we had the ammo shortage back in, uh, what, 2008, uh, right after Obama got elected and everybody freaked out and started buying ammo like crazy, and I said, don't panic, it's going to be all right, there'll be ammo again someday, and now it's everywhere again. Uh, but during that period of time, I could go out and I could buy uh, powder, 
I could buy brass and I could buy bullets. You know what I could hardly find anywhere? Uh, primers, especially small rifle primers and any kind of pistol primer. Large rifle primers were pretty easy to come by still. But small rifle primers, primarily due to people with what? The two two three, uh five five six, whatever you want to call it, the M sixteen round, the AR fifteen round. Uh that that being a very common caliber and something people stock up on. It was very hard to find small rifle calibers and pistol calibers of either size. Uh or pistol pistol uh, primers of either size. Magnum or standard. Very, very difficult to come by. Um, so if we have an ammo shortage, it's probably going to be the first thing to go in short supply because it's the one thing that's not easy. I mean, you can even cast lead. You can pull wheel weights off of cars and cast lead weight uh, or lead bullets. It's not that hard. Um, manufacturing gunpowder and making primers are probably two skills that would be a good idea to at least know how to do for long-term shit at the fan. The better solution to me, though, is, is storage. As far as shelf life, I'll put it to you this way. I have uh, 8mm ammunition on 5-round stripper clips from the 1930s from Turkey, which probably didn't have the best quality control uh, ammunition manufacturer anywhere in the 30s. So this stuff's from 1930s, and uh, I could take it out in my old Mauser today and load it up and shoot it, and it shoots just fine. And I'd say that 95% of the rounds that I put in and pull the trigger go bang. So this was stored poorly, manufactured poorly, uh, and and that old. So properly stored primers, it should last at least as long. Well, I don't know how many of you guys were alive in the 1930s. So that says if you're 40 years old now, or 30 years old now, and you put some primers into storage, put some ammo in storage too, please. A lot of ammo in storage. But if you put primers in storage, they're probably, primer and powder are going to last a long time. And then your reloading is something that's much more sustainable that way because, of course, especially if we load one or two loads under maximum, we can really extend the life of the cases. And storing bullets as a component is a great idea as well, but we can cast lead if we have to. Uh, it's something our forefathers did. It's also uh, one more thing I want to mention. I never really talk about this. I think it would be a great idea for every prepper to own at least one flintlock weapon. Um, that is about as sustainable as it gets. We can make black powder if we have to. We can certainly store a ton of black powder. We can store a lot of black powder. Or the, you know, not really the black powder, but the black powder substitute we use today. Very stable, long-term storage. And with the rate of fire of something like that, uh, you know, a couple pounds of powder is going to last you a damn long time. You don't need a primer. You've got a flash pan and a, and a flint. So it's a very sustainable tool. It's also a great fire starting tool. Even a little flintlock uh, handgun is a great fire starting implement as a backpack thing. And most places, even where firearms are hard to own, I know some crazy places, Chicago, uh, but most places anybody can go without any kind of registration at all and buy a black powder weapon. So it's another option. But your, uh, your, your brother, as you said, your brother-in-law or your brother, whichever one it was, when he says he knows how to do it, he probably does. And it's probably a good skill to have. It's just not something I would be doing every day. Uh, it is on my list of things to learn eventually. And uh, maybe I'll make that one of my skills to add in 2011. Let's go ahead and take another last call of the day. And uh, if anybody's done this or has any information on it, please post it in today's show notes. I'd love to see it uh, from a reputable source if you guys have one to recommend. Hey, Jack. Mike from Virginia here. Today my fiance said, in passing that, uh, you know, we really aren't as much fun as we used to be. And, and we've had some things, some surgeries and stuff that came along this year. But I was looking for your thoughts 
I feel as though part of the reason maybe uh, we aren't having as much fun is because I've gotten more and more worried about the situation and, and, and put more and more efforts in overdrive, and I may be uh, lacking some balance in in uh, keeping things lighthearted and having fun with my family while trying to get them on board and, and prepare my family for what I feel could be some hard times ahead. So any thoughts you have on uh, how to maintaining a balance and, and just, you know, how to keep things light and, and still have fun even though uh, we're facing some pretty uncertain times. I appreciate it. Thanks. Well, first of all, gloom and doom and, and, and scared, you know, fear-based survivalism and being scared and trying to do so much so fast because it's coming and it's going to get us is a bad idea. And it sounds like some of that's in your life. you got to get it out. And that doesn't mean that you're not serious and it doesn't mean that you're not working on preparedness and you're not doing a little bit every day to get more and more prepared. It doesn't mean you're not being a good aunt. And it doesn't mean that you're not willing to look at some of the darker sides of things about how bad things could really get with an, econo an economic collapse, for instance, or a, a pandemic or any of the other things that are truly life-altering on a global or a national scale. Those things are real. Those things are possible. And we do prepare for them. But they are the exception, not the rule. There is something that's inside of this show that I, I, I try to bring out every time I can. And that's the, the whole catchphrase to begin with. Helping you live a better life if times get tough or even if you don't. And what underlies that is the first principle of modern survivalism that I came up with. And that is, simply put, everything that you do to prepare for disaster should improve your life today even if nothing goes wrong. And I guess the one thing that kind of, sort of, doesn't really fit that with a direct response is long-term storage food. Putting up six months, a year worth of uh, long-term storables, the, 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 the stuff that's in the big number 10 cans and all, um, yeah, but not really. And maybe a bug-out bag is something. And personally, me, I'm pulling crap out and using stuff out of my bug-out bag all the time. You go over to a neighbor's for a barbecue, no one has any insect repellent, the mosquitoes are out, run to the bug-out bag, grab the off. There's just one example. Or somebody skins a knee, you've got the first aid kit in the vehicle. So even those things. But those two are kind of not directly applicable. Right? But everything else should have some kind of an immediate payoff or... At least, like, if it's savings, the same thing with retirement savings, uh, you know, you're building up for your future. It's about the motivation. And this is where I think you're losing your balance. And I think this is where a lot of preppers lose their balance in things. Most people come to prepping, come to survivalism, come to any of these, these concepts, depending on what people call them, depending on where they are and how they feel about themselves, from a fear-based mentality. And my entire goal has been to move from fear-based to power-based. If your goal is to be prepared for disaster only, you're going to be miserable. You're not going to have a lot of fun. And no matter how much you do to get prepared, you're going to feel like you haven't done enough. And you're going to be glim. And you're not going to have a positive outlook. And how could you? Because, of course, the apocalypse is coming. How the heck can anybody have a positive outlook and a positive attitude if they know the end of the world is right around the corner? Here it goes, smash, we're going to die. That sucks. So my view is if that happens, it happens. We need to be as prepared to stand as we can. How do we get prepared to stand? We become self-sufficient, independent, and sustainable in our lives. 
Does that feel good or bad? Well, that feels damn good. Every single step you take toward freedom feels good. So instead of focusing on the avoidance of pain and the avoidance of catastrophe, you need to refocus internally and externally on independence and liberty and self-sufficiency, and you'll become one of the most positive people in the world if that's where your focus is. And this is, again... You know, weight loss comes into this. And I know it doesn't seem like the two are related, but people that go on a diet to lose weight almost never lose weight successfully, or if they do, they always put it back on. People that make a healthy lifestyle change to feel better about themselves, to be healthier and live longer, lose weight as a byproduct. They don't even think about it. You know, if you're trying to lose weight, throw your scale away. Go to right wherever your scale is right now. Don't throw it away. It's worth something. Maybe you'll need it someday. Like, 60 days, 90 days from now. Go bury it somewhere. And if you if you can't resist the temptation, throw it the hell away and find a place you can go use the scale 60 to 90 days from now. Just grab it, throw it away, bury it in a hole in the ground, put it out for the dumpster, give it to Goodwill, do whatever you want to with it because it's your enemy. Because it represents the negative. And then you go build a healthier life. You start eating better, you start wa- walking the dog, whatever. It's cold out so you can't walk. Go to the mall, walk around the mall, laugh at people, whatever. But you, you focus on living the empowered, healthy lifestyle, and the weight falls off. If you go weigh yourself every day, I gained a pound. Oh, no, I lost a pound. Yay, I gained two pounds. Oh, no. You haven't lost or gained anything. It's the first four days, and you've had water change, you know? Did you, did you weigh yourself before or after you used the bathroom? That, I mean, that type of thing's going on with these minuscule things. And people do the same thing with prepping. Oh, God, I just read this article. Oh, God, I just listened to Alex Jones. If you're miserable, and I like Alex on some levels. I do. Every time I bring him up, people go, he's not that bad. He's terrible. I get two camps. Entertaining and nuts on some levels. I mean, that's how I feel about it. But it brings a lot of good information to the table. But if you're down and out, don't listen to that, for God's sakes. You know? Start focusing on yourself. So, instead of, well, I'm afraid that this is coming... The hell with what's coming. Whatever's coming is going to come. Another, you know, empowerment thing or, or, or self-improvement thing, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Never read the book. Look at one page of the book. Somebody said, Jack, you got to read this book. I went to the bookstore, pulled it off the shelf, and opened it. I opened it to a page. There were two circles. Once it's circle of influence, it was a little circle. Once it's circle of concern, it was a big circle. Put the book back on the shelf, so that's the only thing I need from this book. That's everything I needed from that book. You're focusing on your circle of concern. Everything you're worried about. The dollar crashing. What the Russians or the Chinese might do next. The ass clowns in Washington. These are all things you're concerned about and they bring you down because you're concerned and you think you're fighting because you held up a sign, you yelled at somebody or argued with somebody in a forum you think you've made a difference, you've done nothing. And of course, if that's what you're doing and the same thing with prepping... All you're doing is buying food, shoving it in a hole in the ground. If you're doing just that, of course you're glim. You're focused on the negative. Your circle of concern. Now, your circle of influence is much smaller. But these are all the things that you are concerned about that you have direct influence over. And I guess the point Stephen Covey was making in that book was people that are effective, highly effective people, focus on that little circle. My tell you, I'll tell you what I think. People that are happy and empowered as preppers, you focus on that circle. That's why I talk so much about things like gardening. You know, gardening is a great gateway to prepping. It leads to prepping. It just naturally happens. But it's empowering. Smelling dirt makes you feel better. 
You know, learn some primitive skills. Take your wife, take your kids, go for a walk on a trail, learn to identify plants. That actually does more for your preparedness than most things that people fret over. If you start realizing, I could eat that, I could make a fire with that, I could build this with that, all of a sudden, you start to feel empowered, and you realize, if I need this, these resources, I know where they are. I know what to do with them. Focus on making your house more sustainable. Focus on getting rid of your debt with the positive view. Not the negative view, debt's bad. The positive view of liberty is good. But really ask yourself, when you're going to take an action, when you're working towards something, does this improve my life today? And not always like, you know, with weight loss. Eating the cinnamon bun improves my life right now this second. Because it tastes good. But does it really improve my life long term? So we have to balance it. Does this make things better today? And does it balance out and make things better in the, in the event of a disaster? But once in a while, screw it. That's the only way I can put it. Just let it the hell go. Go out to a Mexican restaurant, eat a great big dadgone plate of fajitas. You know, and I'm saying, I'm literally saying, go do that. Take the kids, take the wife, pack the car up, go out, drink a margarita. If you're going to drink too, get somebody else to drive. Eat a big old plate of food, whether you're in weight loss or I don't care. Eat it. Once in a while, I ain't going to hurt nothing. Laugh, joke, have fun. Be who you are. Be a human being. But I'm going to tell you, if you're not gardening and you're depressed, garden. Not just the caller, everybody. I honestly believe if everybody in their backyard would put in two to three four-foot by eight-foot raised beds and grow herbs and some basic vegetables and get out there and dig in the dirt and smell the dirt, get it on your hands, get your fingers into the soil, create life. Take some level of your preparedness. We would put most of the psychotropic drug manufacturers and psychologists and psychiatrists out of business. Half of America's mental problems, maybe 75%, could be cured in a garden. And yes, be awake. Yes, be aware. Understand the risks. But look at what you're doing like life insurance. You buy it and hope to hell you never have to use it. But it's there. Make your preps the same way. But try to make preps things you can use. Storing food. Eat what you store, store what you eat. Once you get three months of food stored, you can get through most problems. Just keep buying a little bit of long-term storage food and throw it in the back. And keep rotating that 90-day supply. All of a sudden, that's not a downer. I go to the store. I buy the groceries. I put them in the back. I use what's in the front. I need something. It's there. I can save money. It's all positive. Stay positive. Because this is the most positive thing that you can do. Again, this is why I focused on homesteading, permaculture, gardening, taking a walk, learning some primitive skills, spending time with each other, getting rid of... You know why you get rid of the debt? So you're not working when you're 70. So you're not saying, maybe I'll wait till 73 to retire. Maybe 76. Maybe I can retire but get a part-time job as a greeter at Walmart. That's pretty depressing. Let me put it to you this way. If you work really hard over the next couple of years in a positive way, with happiness and a good attitude, and you get prepared to live a life where if the system fails, you can still make it. If the system doesn't fail, you can make it on 50% of your effort. And that gives you the other 50% of your time to do things like soul-building work with your spouse and your children. Or maybe as you get a little older, your grandchildren. 
Prepping is the most positive influence in your life, if you will allow it to be. But the only thing, the only thing that will destroy it for you is fear. And I deal with this stuff every day. Every single day I'm researching the next threat. What's going on? What's happening? I'm watching companies like Monsanto destroy our biosphere. I'm watching the politicians destroy our liberty and our freedom. I'm watching the, the Federal Reserve and the politicians and the banks collectively destroy our economic freedom and destroy our currency. I'm watching cities that are on the verge of bankruptcy. And you say, how could you be positive? Because I know that no matter what happens, I am a free, independent, sovereign individual. And if you want what I have, by God, you're going to have to fight to take it away from me. And I'll stand my ground and I'll fight. I'll do everything I can to avoid the fight. But when it comes, I'm going to stand here and fight for it. That's a very empowering thing. And I know that no matter what comes my way, unless I'm run over by a truck and dead, that inside of myself, I have what I need to adapt, improvise, and overcome, and still continue to thrive, not just live, not just survive. That's why I don't have a bunker in the ground with a little air tube coming up with a nuclear filter on it. I'm not living in a hole in the freaking ground. I'm going to live free and independent as I possibly can. And every step I take every day is going to further that goal. You want balance. That's the balance. Fear leads to misery. Fear leads to making stupid decisions. When we're afraid... We make a decision we would never make if we just pulled back and thought first. And when we're constantly making fear-based decisions, fear becomes the master of our lives. And if we have fear as the master of our lives, we're not going to be happy. We're not going to be fun. We're not going to go eat that plate of freaking fajitas, for God's sakes. And we're not going to enjoy something as cheap and simple as a peanut butter sandwich on toast with a cold glass of milk for a dessert. Try it. Crunchy peanut butter. That's my favorite. You take what you like. Nice hot toast. A little bit of peanut butter. Top. Cold milk. How can you be talking about a peanut butter sandwich when we're talking about apocalypse? There was a movie. It was either Young Guns or Young Guns 2. And Billy the Kid was telling a story about one of the other guy told him. And it said that the world was ending. And there were these guys playing Mahjong or something like that in China. And... Everybody was freaking out and running somewhere. And one man sat calmly with his game pieces. And he said, I shall finish the game. To me, that's where we need to be. I shall finish the game. This is my life. I'm sovereign over it. That's how you, can, that's how you make balance. That's how you create balance. And that's how you seek liberty. I know some of it may seem oversimplified, but it's not. It's all about our individual choices for our individual lives. I hope that answers your question. I hope that helps everybody that's listening today understand the importance of individual liberty and focusing on the things you actually can influence and putting at a priority above all other things your own individual liberty and freedom and that of your family. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.